early in an election year, Rules for Retrogrades announced Catholic Minimal Government Week. This is what we call Calf Min Gov Week, and we have five exciting guests. On Monday, Father Robert Sirico. On Tuesday, Mr. Trent Horn. On Wednesday, Miss Stephanie Slade of Reason. On Thursday, Dr. Samuel Gregg. On Friday, Robert R. Riley. And on Saturday, we have a special surprise guest. It's an early election year, and the stakes have never been higher. We need Catholic minimum government. Welcome, parish organs and retrogrades, to day five. Exciting day five of Calf Min Gov Week here on Rules for Retrogrades. My brother Dave and co-host is still in transit to the Midwest there, the the uh, oh, war-torn Midwest, as we're all watching our television screens. And so I did this week, and Memorial Day week, what's been called over five very effective days, Catholic Minimum Government Week, each day with an exciting guest, uh, uh, a more exciting guest than the last, I'll say here on on Friday uh, with with my friend Robert R. Riley. Uh, Bob, it's great to see you. We've talked a lot on the phone. This is the first time we've ever skyped. How the heck are you? Great, Tim. It's a, a pleasure to be with you, to say the least. And you, uh, I, I don't do extensive bios here when I have a guest on uh, on rules for retrogrades, but uh, Bob, you're the book, uh, the author of uh, a number of excellent books and have have such an extensive bio that it's intimidating to read. Today we're going to be talking about your book, America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. It's an excellent book. It hits very dear to my heart and my mind because it's it's really uh, a concomitant piece to Catholic Republic. I have a skateboard deck made in the fashion of my book, Catholic Republic. And we consulted a lot over the last two years on uh, compared notes a lot as you wrote this book. It's particularly important to have you on today because America is indeed on trial. Yes, from the left liberals and the, you know, barely concealed socialists. Who cares about them, right? They don't, they don't really matter that much. Everyone's used to that. Your book is so important and timely now because America is on trial from faithful Catholics. Do you want to say a word about that in opening? Well, it's, it's kind of ironic uh, that it should be the case because it wasn't, certainly at the time of the founding from Charles Carroll and John Carroll, who was the first, later became the first bishop in the United States. Uh, there was wholehearted support recognized by George Washington from the Catholic community. And uh, there were reports to Rome from John Carroll that the American Revolution, <clears throat> excuse me, was tremendous good news for Catholics who are obliged to support this new republic because for the first time, uh, the civil rights of Catholics was acknowledged in so many of those new states. Uh, and this, uh, Anyway, you know the history of that as well as I do. Also, as you have noted in your own book, the American founding was deeply embedded in the natural law tradition. And the natural law tradition is a Catholic tradition, not solely Catholic, because obviously Aristotle and Cicero were not Catholics. 
But the Catholic Church adapted uh, and adopted the natural law teaching, uh, expanded upon it, articulated it brilliantly, made it the basis in the Middle Ages for the articulation of constitutional principles, which is uh, sort of startling news to many people who enfold the Middle Ages, you know, in this, this opprobrious term, the Dark Ages. But that's where we find the articulation of the equality of all people, the sovereignty of the people. Yes, God is sovereign, but he invests the sovereignty in the people whose consent is therefore required in their government whether it's a monarchy or a republic, et cetera. Certainly. This was yeah, clear from Aquinas, clear from the major scholastic thinkers. Uh, the right to representation, um, the requirement of consent, and universally acknowledged the right to revolution against a tyrant. Uh, there was no such thing as the divine right of kings in the Middle Ages. Right. Right. And and so these uh, principles, and also I should say, the key, key principle of uh, which later came to be articulated as no taxation without representation. This was a medieval principle uh, that what affects all must be agreed to by all. All these principles were instantiated in ecclesiastical corporations in religious orders, and in church councils. Right. So if you look at the Dominicans, this is the way the Dominicans uh, ruled themselves. Right. Uh, and these orders, for instance, when the Dominicans arrived in England, uh, the, their influence uh, expanded into the civic realm. And then you see these very same principles in the early parliaments. Yes. Now, this is all based upon natural law. And therefore, um, the American founding, <clears throat> and you don't have to be a Catholic to say this, one of the great scholars of the American founding is Ellis Sandoz, right. who is a Protestant, who makes it clear in his very profound works that the American founding was a kind of counter-revolution that is against the absolutism of both Hobbes and the divine right of kings, and a restoration of medieval constitutional principles. It was a return to the Middle Ages and a restoration of those, and of course, a refinement of them and a further development of them in the unique federal structure of uh, the US Constitution. So just to round that back to your question, Tim, it's, it's a little startling to see not just uh, Catholic scholars, but Catholic scholars who are roughly identified as conservative, yes. as being the ones to mount the attack against the American founding as responsible for the moral degeneracy which we see around us today in abortion and pornography, drugs, dissolution of the family, and believe it or not, uh, LGBT rights and transgender son, or tra right. trans gender yeah. ism. ism. Ism, yeah. There, it's actually becoming ism, believe it or not. Yeah, too many isms now. 
So it is it is very startling. It's just the opposite of what you would expect. And it's 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 the opposite to people like the late Michael Novak, uh, whom I knew well, and uh, the opposite of, say, someone like George Weigel today, both of them being eloquent defenders of the American founding. So it is it is startling. And it's it's disconcerting. Yeah, moral to, to, to pin moral degeneracy on the American founding is, in my view, moral illiteracy. And it is surprising to see it coming from the likes of Dr. Patrick Deneen at Notre Dame. Both you and I have debated him in various formats. Uh, more recently, Adrian Vermeule, even the very, very... Um, Swift apt scholar who I respect, uh, Hadley Arkies, defending Vermeule's article last month in the Atlantic. He he defended it, and I took a shot at it in the American Mind, you know, which is associated with your friends there at Claremont. Um, there, there's an all-around attack on the American founding as a product of Masonic Enlightenment type thought on on the one hand, and and Protestant thought. Uh, on the other hand, which is why I want to talk about your your uh, uh, key theme in chapter one, which is voluntarism, which really does characterize Protestantism. It, it sets a real barrier there to a Protestant natural law. Um, it, it's, it's debatable how, how successful a Protestant natural law can be. But the point is, we, we spoke to Samuel Gregg yesterday of Acton Institute, and he makes the point. The emphasis on liberty, and you just said it a second ago, the emphasis on liberty comes to be a, a political science emphasis in the late scholastic era, right? 13th century or so. That's the new emphasis on liberty. Um, Bellarmine is the one being read by Jefferson, being read by Madison. You'll never hear Vermeule or Deneen talking about the fact that, that Bellarmine is really the key thinker behind all the other thinkers of Whiggism in the American Revolution in the 1770s. And um, really, the, the uh, ideas associated, like political, uh, the new political science of the Enlightenment, was about social contract theory and all this stuff that wasn't really important to the American founding. What was truly important to the American founding was Bellarmine and Thomas and the idea of guided freedom or liberty not, you know, a, a liberty for its own sake, which we call license. Well, that's, you called it moral illiteracy. I, what I find rather surprising is the paucity of evidence offered by uh, Patrick Deneen, Michael Hanby, and others who hold this position. They don't think they need evidence uh, because they envelop the American founding in the radical enlightenment principles of individual autonomy. Right. It's not a surprise they should do so because we see that principle of radical individual autonomy articulated in Supreme Court cases sure. for same-sex marriage, the right to sodomy in the Constitution, and these other bizarre rulings that explicitly referred to individual autonomy, a, a phraseology that is utterly foreign to the American founding. I'm not sure they would, they would know what, what was meant by such a thing. And that thinking clearly is a product of the radical 
Enlightenment. Uh, but was it part of, of, of the U.S. founding? I think you'd have to uh, homogenize liberalism to say it only means one thing. And by through this homogenization, uh, they're able to say that the American Revolution and the French Revolution are really the same revolution. Uh, its consequences here were manifested a little later uh, simply because of the the stronghold of Christianity on the American population. And as that has ebbed, you see this coming to the fore. Yes. Well, uh, as you know, the one thing about which all of the American founders agreed was the requirement of virtue without which the republic would fail. Uh, as Madison said, there is no form of government uh, more dependent upon the virtue of the citizenry than a republic. And George Washington, in his first inaugural address, spoke of the indissoluble union of virtue and happiness. So that little phrase in the Declaration of Independence about the pursuit of happiness means the pursuit of virtue, because there's no happiness without virtue. So right. whether you want to speak of virtue in an Aristotelian or Christian way, both of which were present at the time of the founding, it was the indispensable foundation for the enterprise. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you, you said this already, that they didn't mean moral license. And their expression of this position was so unambiguous that it leaves me flabbergasted that someone would suggest otherwise. That's why I called it illiteracy. I mean, Jefferson admits that um, Aristotle and Cicero were two of the most important four thinkers of the 1770s. The combination, he, he can't say Thomas Aquinas or Bellarmine, but what, what people don't understand that is a matter of historical fact is that Robert Bellarmine's the one that says, look, you know, power comes from the people. It comes from God, but, but earthly power comes from the people. He was being refuted by none other than the hated royalist Robert Filmer, who comes up with this BS notion of uh, the divine right of kings, which was made up out of whole cloth in a text called Patriarcha. In Patriarcha, Filmer is responding to none other than Bellarmine, who's saying republics are good, um, one of the three viable forms of, of regime, right? It doesn't have to be a monarchy. A lot of these kids nowadays, 2025, 20, that are otherwise faithful Catholics, they're, they're misguided under the misapprehension that the only moral regime for a Catholic is monarchy. Aquinas, Bellarmine, they all say, no, there are three forms of valid regime. There's a fourth, which is a mixed form, very close to what we have in America. And um, as a matter of fact, John Locke and Algernon Sidney were reading Bellarmine, and so were Jefferson and Madison. You don't get the ideas of limited government, liberty without license, uh, you know, all the ideas of American founding writ large on the strength of the Whigs, unless there is before them Robert Bellarmine. And, and so people don't understand this. They need to be made aware that the Whigs hated Robert Filmer 
and the Whigs, even though they were Protestant, they didn't like Bellarmine's uh, Catholicity. It was kind of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And this carried through the following century. John Locke and Algernon Sidney are writing in the, in a, during the time of the Glorious Revolution in the late 1600s. A hundred years later, the neo-Whigs across the pond, the Americans like Jefferson and Adams, are reading Sidney and Locke because they're good men of the moderate Enlightenment and Protestants, Protestants in name. But really, who they're channeling is Bellarmine, who's sort of the, the master of those who know in the what we would call non-modernist but good modern political thought it's bellarmine and underneath bellarmine is thomas aquinas well it's yeah. it's yeah it, you know this is part of the kind of black legends of catholicism that the divine right of kings was a product of it when indeed it was a product of the reformation yes which put the church in the hands of the prince or the king so the political head also became the ecclesiastical head the, yes. the famous two swords teaching of the church since gelasius was was overcome by by luther and some other protestants and that the the loudest and most articulate voices against the divine right of kings uh radically articulated by James I and yeah. defended, as you say, by Robert Filmer and Patriarcha, uh, were met head-on by an Ital Italian cardinal, Bellarmine, and also by the Spanish Jesuit, uh, Francisco Suarez. Yeah. And uh, whereas Filmer, uh, first of all, tries to rebut Bellarmine, he also feels the need to rebut Suarez, yes. uh, whose who's writing so upset James I that he had the 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 hangman burn Suarez's uh, works in public at King's Cross in London. Is that true? Yes, I've heard that. I didn't know if it, it was is, black legend itself, but no. Yeah. And and there, it, it, it very clear that these were the two most powerful voices against divine right of kings. So much so that James got in a public exchange with Bellarmine, which highly unusual for a royal figure to condescend to uh, engage in a public argument with a commoner. But he needed, he felt he needed to do so because uh, Bellarmine's arguments were so powerful. Right. And that's why, as you say, Algernon Sidney <clears throat> was such a hero in the American colonies uh, had to uh, acknowledge the strength of Bellarmine's arguments because he too was writing against uh, Patriarcha. Right. And he had to, he, because he was a Protestant, he did it begrudgingly, saying right. that Bellarmine is articulating the sort of common sense of mankind. That's all right because that's what Bellarmine himself said he was doing. Sure, but natural law. They're the same arguments. That's natural law. Sydney, by the way, um, what was a, a more classical natural law guy, uh, certainly more than Locke. Yeah. And Sydney had an enormous influence on the American founding. And Sydney's other source, the person whom he so frequently uh, quoted, was Richard Hooker. Right. Was the first Anglican theologian. 
who I'd say saved the Reformation from itself by restoring Thomist and Aristotelian thought to Anglicanism as he was fighting the radical Puritan movement uh, in England. So these, all of these sources conjoined uh, to, to form the American mind. And then you, right. you already spoke of, of the, the open acknowledgement of, of Cicero, uh, of, of Aristotle, of, uh, of Sidney, most surely. And of course, of Locke as well, because they took Locke's second discourse, uh, most particularly for its uh, stirring defense of the right of revolution against uh, tyranny. Right. Yeah, you, um, so uh, within a, guess, a, maybe now it's a four-year period, but uh, I was going to say a three-year period, Dr. Samuel Gregg, who we had on yesterday, uh, wrote Tea Party Patriot and some of his other works are unidirectional. I wrote Catholic Republic, and you are now uh, have the book America on Trial, uh, Defense of the Founding. That we all have our own emphases. I would, if I had to gather under a grouping principle, I would say you and Dr. Gregg, who are two of my very favorite scholars, are more charitable to the self-consistency of the claims of um, Hooker than I am. You know, maybe maybe you're you're right and I'm wrong. I'd say to, I'd like to guide this into the first chapter of of uh, your book, which is a really excellent book, and I just I really think my viewers. And listeners need to go and buy it and, and read it because it's really important. And it has so many emphases that neither Greg's book nor, nor my book, Catholic Republic, have. But um, when you talk about the dichotomy of reason versus will, I, I'll just say this. You don't have to defend against it. But I'm skeptical of all Protest, Protestant natural law. I'm, I'm probably the most skeptical, like I said, because... I think there's that this is like describing a circular square, and um, you make a good case in the other direction, and so does Dr. Gregg. But I'm you. You think the dichotomy of reason, which is really uh, right makes might, versus will or voluntarism, which is might makes right. I think because of the inherently voluntaristic strain of Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, you know, Melanchthon in the Reformation. Uh, the Reformation can never really be saved from its own voluntarism. You say the opposite, um, but except, again, the dichotomy of reason and will is not just contrary uh, contrary to the United States. Um, but let me put it this way. The Reformation and the Enlightenment are the ones that put forward and interrogate uh, what I'd call voluntarism. It's a unique Catholic position to be able to say, no, God's God's will flows from his intellect. That's a unique Catholic point of view. It is a concomitant of Aristotle. And so, yeah, when we talk about reason and will, where is God's true nature revealed? This has much to do with politics. Uh, what do you say? Oh, I, it has a tremendous amount to do with politics. The uh, theological fulcrum on which the book turns is exactly the issue you just put your finger on. Uh, is God pure will and power, uh, which is the voluntarist view, in which case uh, his reason proceeds from his will, his reason is a servant of the will, and the pure will can decide anything. It's, it's arbitrary by its very nature. 
Or is God, uh, as Sam Gregg emphasizes so strongly, logos, reason, and his will proceeds from his reason. And this, of course, is explicitly what Thomas Aquinas asserted. Yes. That, that, that God's will proceeds from his divine intellect, which is primary. This makes all the difference, and it's why law must be reason. Yes. If you adhere to the voluntarist view of God as pure will and power, then law becomes simply an expression of will and not of reason. And there, in very short form, you have the origins of legal positivism. And yes. As many legal scholars have pointed out, legal positivism has its uh, ex first expressions in uh, the Lutheran parts of, of Germany. Now, um, I, I don't think all... So the real key is whether you are holding a voluntarist and therefore necessarily a nominalist view of reality or whether you have a realist uh, metaphysical view with the primacy of reason. Can you unpack those terms real quick for our viewers? Because they're not all... Yeah, I mean, you well, could do it. Say, voluntarism is the view that uh, God is... is is pure power and will. He can do anything as a consequence of which uh, nothing is left with a, a nature that is integral to it. A fixed uh, definition, yeah. Yeah, so that it's therefore nominalism means that we have for things names that don't accord with what they are because we can't really know what they are. They could, they could, God could change them into something else. Right. And they exist only as the immediate expression of his will. And since his will is arbitrary, it can change. So we, we, the essences, the nature of things disappears. So as Etienne Gilson said about William of Ockham, uh, there, there is no order in nature for Ockham because there's no nature. Right. Yeah. So right. this is obvious. And so you, you could not, found a, a republic on the laws of nature and nature's God if you had a voluntaristic and nominalistic understanding of reality. So the key, I, I don't try to hammer on the, the well, though, I mean, the chapter I have on Luther, you read in yeah. a early draft, Tim. Yeah. You know I don't mince words in there. No. But that is preceded. By the chapter on William of Ockham, who yes. was a Catholic priest. Right. So there he is writing in the late Middle Ages, articulating this view that God is pure will and power, and that there are no such things as essences, and the names we have for things don't correspond to what they were they really are, because we can't know what they really are. This was a devastating loss. And of course, Luther was uh heavily influenced by Occam. And so th that's the key. The key is this issue, not whether you're called a Protestant or a Catholic, because this had invested uh, the Catholic thinking, I mean, very heavily. By the late Middle Ages, the school of Occam uh, was close to predominant. Right. Yeah, but, but the, the, the irony is where the rubber meets the road, 
the popular mind, popular American mind or worldly mind in general, conceives of Protestantism writ large as being more fertile soil for republicanism and Catholicism as more fertile soil for monarchy. And it's actually the the reverse. Uh, the implications when we... A good scholar, you know, understands the devil and hears in the details. But writ large, so people out there listening understand, it's Aristotle and Thomas who affirm that really a people can pick between any of the three good regimes of Plato. A monarchy ruled by one, an aristocracy ruled by few, or a republic ruled by the many, which each have perverted forms of the regime. But you can pick between those, or you can pick a fourth. A mixed regime that's got three branches, one branch for each of the types. You can you can line the the three branches, executive, legislature, judiciary, up with the uh, the, the three good regimes I just listed, and that's well, a very you, Catholic thought. And the Protestants yeah. objected. Well, as you know, both Aquinas and uh, Bellarmine recommended mixed regimes. Yes, so both said the monarchy could be the best regime if you have the best monarch. Uh, you know, the rule of the wisest, but there's no guarantee for that. And and, and since there isn't, the, the, the best thing is most likely this mixed regime. But the key, I think, in um, Lutheran thought is his explicit denial of the medieval constitutional principles. Luther denied the sovereignty of the people. Yes. He denied the right to representation. Luther explicitly denied the right to consent. And People think the exact opposite. He virulently yeah. denied um, the right to revolution against tyranny. Now, he later changed his mind. Of course, Luther wrote many different things about the same issues in his voluminous writings, but that was pretty explicit. Yeah. And it formed the character of the Lutheran portions of of Germany that were manifested in very interesting ways as late as the 20th century uh, that we don't, we don't need to go into that. But um, the respect for authority, no matter what that authority is, obtained. Because there could be nothing worse uh, for Luther than uh, a revolution even against a tyrant. So I, if you take those principles of Luther seriously, there could never have been an American founding. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's a ton. Look, this is Kath Min Gov Week, the, the last day there. We have a surprise guest tomorrow on Saturday. But we, I, I did this because well, it's Memorial Day week. And because I feel, I know you feel it too. I know Dr. Greg feels it as well. I know Father Robert Sirico feels it as well. And Trent Horn, who just released a book, uh, attacking socialism, and in turn, he's attacked by Catholic socialists for, for so doing. We all notice a, a rising of the tide. Um, there is a, from faithful Catholics, there is a movement known as post-liberalism. It just says liberalism is a poison, like Deneen told me when I debated him, liberalism is a poison pill, um, even though it's simply a in reality, a, a non-interventionist philosophy, which can be used for good or for ill, these post-liberals are who are really becoming big government advocates quite fast. They're saying that the, the fait accompli of the moral degeneracy we see in America, you made reference to this earlier, 
which we're not quibbling with. It represents a misuse and abuse of liberty. And actually, the founders warned against it so much. They called it licentiousness, or we just call it license. Um, and you already referred to that as well. But these post-liberal thinkers, Bob, they say that this is baked in and that, that, that uh, liberalism and republicanism can do no better. But they're saying so against Thomas Aquinas, Bellarmine, whatever. What, what's the, what, how, how best should we respond to them? Because we're not used to de- we're used to dealing against left liberals. We're not used to dealing against faithful Catholics. It's weird. Well, as you know, Tim, my response is the book. Yeah. And, and what I, I try to show in it is that um, the ideas, what made the American founding conceivable uh, was not the Enlightenment, because the principles of uh, the American founding were articulated before the Enlightenment, as you and I were just discussing. Uh, so they weren't dependent upon the Enlightenment. The, the founding was a restoration of pre-Enlightenment principles. Doesn't mean it wasn't affected by the Enlightenment. It was. But, uh, you know, that's so. And of course, I, I try to show that without Jewish monotheism, Greek philosophy, without the Christian uh, teaching of secularism, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's means Caesar has a legitimate uh, realm in which to operate that can't obviously transgress the spiritual realm. I I note, and uh, you have too, that Patrick Deneen pines for the ancient polis and, you know, the virtue promulgated by the, the ancient polis. Well, what ended the ancient polis was Christianity. That's right. That said man's Fulfillment is not reached through his political order. It's reached through his individual relationship with a God uh, who uh, has made him the object of infinite love and the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So the state is not the engine of salvation. Christ is. So this permanently downgrades the state, the polis. It becomes uh, uh, exclu- or should be concerned exclusively with arranging uh, certain material and secular things in life so that people can go about the serious matter in life, which is their salvation, which is it's reached through that faith in Christ, or perhaps if they don't have that faith, through their other religions. So the, the state can't make those larger claims that it had in the pre-Christian period. So to to try to reinstall the state at that level seems to me to be a profound misunderstanding of what Christianity is. Precisely. Uh, you, you note that um, Rod Dreher, you know, Patanine, Adrian Vermeule et al., um, who believe who believe Deneen's fundamental claim that um, the purpose of American government is to liberate the autonomous individual. They will never say that they always mischaracterize liberty, which is a good thing. It's good in Leo the Thirteenth. It's good in Bellarmine, Suarez, Mariana, Thomas, Augustine, Aristotle. All the good, important thinkers of our tradition. Leo the Thirteenth, though, Pius the Eleventh. 
liberty is a good thing, but they will never even call it liberty. They will they will attack the philosophy of liberty, which is liberalism, but they will only ever refer to the liberation of the autonomous individual. And this seems like um, dishonest rhetoric to me. They they'll never they'll never squarely address the right ordered usage of our freedom, which is liberty, versus the wrong ordered usage of our freedom, which is license. They will always refer to the autonomous individual. You, on the other hand, say if you believe America's uh, congenitally their or your enemy, um, um, I guess it makes sense that you guys refuse to defend it and you attack it. Is this more or less the upshot of the book? The fact that they won't characterize liberty, qua liberty, but liberty is the liberation of the autonomous individual who wants to go find porn and, and gambling as quickly as they can? I think we would agree with them, Tim, that that's morally repugnant. Of course. But, but is assigning its origin <clears throat> to the founding, uh, my response, <clears throat> excuse me, is prove it. Prove it. And the, in the last part of the book, I examine the evidence they proffer, uh, which is very scant indeed and completely unconvincing. <clears throat> it involves a profound misreading of some of the founding documents. Um, Patrick Deneen leans very heavily on Federalist 10. Yes, he does. In attempting to show, uh, to prove his case. Whereas it, it is, he, he mistakenly misquotes Madison in Federalist 10. And he acknowledged his misquotation, but he, he takes the quotation marks off and keeps presenting the same position as if it's something Federalist 10 says, and it doesn't say it. Uh, he can't support the case there. And I'm afraid it leads him to misread the Declaration of Independence, yes, which he thinks is a Hobbesian document. <clears throat> I should mention this uh, as, as an integral part of the argument, <clears throat> I'm sorry, Tim, uh, against the American founding. And it's, here it is. They say the founding was exclusively the product of the thinking of John Locke. And John Locke is simply Thomas Hobbes with a smiley face. Precisely. And that's why we get uh, what we are getting, what we're in the process of getting, which is a Leviathan state. So we're getting Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan. I think I try to make explicitly clear in the book that Hobbes is certainly the progenitor of the the voluntarist and nominalist position. Right. Yeah. He is the defender of the absolute power of the sovereign in whom is joined all secular and ecclesiastical power. And that is, of course, exactly against what the American founders revolted. Branch. <laughs> Root and branch. Root yeah. and branch. And, and to, it's, it's so, Locke is a problematical thinker. Locke can, can be and was read in a variety of different ways by the French, by the Americans, uh, each of whom used Locke, let us say, for their own purposes. Uh, but but I, there, I, I certainly don't think 
from my own reading of Hobbes and Locke that you can make that case that, that when he is the opposite to Locke in almost every respect, the Locke makes despotism dispositive. Right. If there's anything against which Locke writes and advocates, it's against despotism. So right. it's, yeah, it, that does not work. It doesn't work. So, now, and just, Tim, just to close that out. Therefore, uh, Deneen, by the way, I, I, I want to say about Patrick Deneen that I think he is a very fine thinker. Yeah. I, I think that his diagnosis of the moral ills of today is profound. They are. I find Michael Hanby is is a great metaphysician and and has a terrific grip on, let us say, the metaphysics of our moral decline. So I admire both of these men, but I, I think they they don't they, they misread the founding in a profound way. Um, a couple things. Uh, I agree with you. I, I admire much of Deneen and Hanby's work. I'm not speaking for you here. More, I'm, th There's more, I think, for me anyway, to admire than in Vermeule's work, because I'm also a constitutional scholar, and not only do I say he's misreading Thomas, Aristotle, Catholicism on republicanism, but he's misreading originalism. I, like I say, I respond to him in the American mind. Uh, whereas Deneen, guys like you and I and Greg... We all agree with with the, the fact of the problems. We're disputing whether or not it was a poison pill. Also with Deneen, so you went back and forth with him scripturally, you know, in written form. I, I actually debated him on a podcast called Right on Point. Um, the, you know, <laughs> I'm a little biased because I'm on your side. I, we're, we're the Catholic classical liberals or whatever you want to term it. He's a post-liberal. So I'm a little biased. I, I say verdict if i'm the judge you win decisively you're writing in claremont review of books and he's only responding on uh, ryan t anderson's public discourse one area so you mentioned um federalist 10 on that single issue here's what i liked about what he was saying you you respond to this here's the whole context for people that haven't read the articles which is most of the uh group what i what makes me uncomfortable in federalist 10 is that Madison says, look, we can either, uh, when it comes to the size and scope of the republic, because Madison was pitching a republic that would be pluralistic, and that is novel. We have to acknowledge that that's novel in the history of classical republican theory. Aristotle, Augustine, Thomas, all, all the guys we keep mentioning, the, the, the late scholastics, they all conceived of republics that were morally and religiously univocal and small. And, and even Montesquieu says this, they're small. So in Federalist 10, famous Federalist 10, Madison says, okay, th this is a problem. Pluralism can be a problem. We can either remove the cause or control the effects of the problem. What do we do? That's, that's, that's the case when there's really any problem. The anti-federalists who I pitch as really more, I mean, the modern anti-federalists like George Mason, they say just let's just go classical Republican theory. Let's keep the America restricted to maybe four republics or maybe 13. The more radical anti-federalists said, let's make it 13. We'll be a league of friendship. 
but we're going to really keep our sovereignty in a stronger way than even the Articles of Confederation uh, warranted. Madison says, no, let's do the latter. Let's control the effects of pluralism rather than removing the cause, which is the pluralism itself. I thought Deneen comported himself best in that argument when he said, well, I don't really like that. But he that immediately he veers off. So I guess you, Deneen, and I, whereas normally you and I represent the same voice, I say let's go with the anti-federalists, who I, I really pitch as the more classical Catholic Republican theorists. Deneen takes it a different direction. Can you respond to why? And I, I won't refute you. I just want to give you, because this is what I thought as I read your excellent piece in Claremont Review of Books. You're defending Madison saying let's, let's um, control the effects of pluralism. Yeah. Yeah, I, that always made me uncomfortable. I wasn't defending Madison. I was just trying to understand what he was saying. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. And, and in Federalist 10, Madison is making a prudential argument. He is not stating philosophical principles. True. He simply, he's, he is saying that faction <clears throat> presents a problem. How do we deal with the problem of factionalism? And he he simply observes its existence sort of anthropologically. I mean, it's sort of a, a matter of original sin. You know, yes. now are you going to extirpate original sin? The great thing about the American founding, unlike the French Revolution, is that it it did not believe in the perfectibility of man here. Yes. And, or the, and the state is the engine of that perfectibility. So that nonsense that uh, was so destructive in revolutionary France didn't occur in the United States. No. So they were, yeah, they were prudent. And Madison's uh, answer, which you dislike, is, is faction is less likely to have a harmful role uh, to get a grip on the power on power to the disadvantage of the minority if you have a large federal republic and and that indeed was unique in that the united states really created a government of governments so that you had a dual sovereignty really the sovereignty of the states and the sovereignty of the federal government it was really rather brilliant Yes. The the problem with uh, your position, Tim, <clears throat> Aristotle, I think, said Republicans should be no bigger than, you know, what, what up to the town crier, his voice can reach, you know, right. everyone can hear. And of course, they didn't have representative republics, but everyone directly participated. Um, when you read George Washington, on the problems of the Articles of Confederation, uh, it, it was dysfunctional. Uh, Shays Rebellion and the other problems, the, and the mischief that Great Britain and other powers were um, uh, up to, uh, sure. because they, they could see that the, the United States was not yet unitary. Under the, the Articles of Confederation. Yeah, they had yeah. A, a, a yeah. strong executive, or an army, a standing army, or all of the other things. That it was one branch government. It was treaty government. It was We only had a national Congress, which is, by the way, a treaty government term. There is no executive or no national judiciary. Yeah, yeah. so, so yeah. Um, it, 
you know, Washington repeatedly warned about this. We're going to be picked apart. We'll yeah. become the playground for the European powers who will set us against each other. We need a stronger unitary state, um, which, of course, Madison was defending in, in uh, Federalist 10 is addressing the the problem of faction, which is not only an internal problem, but it's one which foreign powers could take advantage of. So, as I say, it's, it's a prudential address sure. to an endemic human condition. Um, and it, it worked pretty brilliantly. I, I don't think that, the, yeah, I mean, the Articles of Confederation were simply dysfunctional. Something had to be done. Yeah, I wish, you know, I have a, a, a case of the spose does. I wish that the, because Madison was a famous waffler, right? He was kind of a big government advocate in the 1780s. Then he became a small government advocate in the 1790s, then kind of went back to big government in the 1800s. He'd been tutored with all of the great Virginians under the, the famous law tutor, George Wythe, W-Y-T-H-E, Jefferson, Monroe, uh, both of the Lee brothers, uh, George Mason, and and old, you know, Jefferson and uh, Patrick Henry were like the two eldest students. And that's where they got a bunch of their classics. He taught them not only law, but the classics. I wish that, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not one of these LARPs on the internet, like, like, like Deneen tends in this direction. I don't, I don't envisage the ancient Greek polis or city state. I think Montesquieu is represented by, um, represents how to do a, a republic in a, a larger geographic area than a city. It might have to be more like the size of a small state. And, um, I, I think that, you know, the, some of the really moderate anti-federalists like George Mason were making the case that, yes, we need a more energetic central government than the Articles, but not as energetic as some of the dangerous places of branch power swapping that he called out. Brutus's third, fourth, fifth letter, the anti-federalist Brutus, says, really? There's there's some real dangers in the branch swapping of the American government, and ironically, it's it's weird that guys like Deneen take issue with this because they like the branch swapping, right? They like, and what I mean by that is a judiciary making law from the bench. This is what um, this is what Bermule is advocating in his famous Atlantic article of last. Guys like me and you don't like. I so yeah I guess it's just a case of the supposed as I mainly like uh, Madison as a thinker uh, uh, you know Madison 10 39 51 um, these are these are important documents I think I just wish that in the places of conservative higher academy we could show that in the dialectical tradition of Socrates Plato Aristotle I wish we could show some of the back and forth of the political genius that's undeniable of James Wilson of Pennsylvania and Madison on the Federalist side in the late 1780s and some of the genius responses by the anti-Federalist papers. They're both presenting good ideas and they're, they're quite close together. But I mean, Cato, Brutus, the federal farmer, they, they add important pushback to Federalist 1039 and 51. But like I said, on the whole, it, I love what you're saying. It's tremendously rich. And yeah. James Wilson, you you mentioned one of the founders whom I admire most, which is James Wilson. Yeah, 
if there was a classical natural law thinker at the time of the founding, it was Wilson. Yes. Read, you read his lectures on law, the depth of this man's learning. He was, uh, I, I think, the, in terms of the classics, the person whom he quoted uh, most frequently was Cicero. Yeah. And uh, he also, of course, was a great fan of, of Richard Hooker. Um, I, slightly off topic, when you mentioned uh, Patrick Henry and Jefferson's education and so forth, about half the founders, uh, about half the people in the Constitutional Convention had gone to colleges, right. the colonies. They had to know Latin to get in. Yeah. They were required to translate Virgil in their entrance examination. They all knew Latin and Greek, and many of them uh, knew Hebrew, so they could read the Old Testament in the original. It irritates me to no end that some of the critics of the founding condescend to these men. Yeah, I know. Because of the depth of their learning, the, the brilliance of their thinking, the brilliance of their writing, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to think of other times in history when you had such a collection of talent in one place at one time. Right. It's, it's right. simply astonishing. Something and within they, the water. Yeah, it's crazy. Were, that they were able to pull this off. It's crazy. Just it, it is a close to miraculous thing that they fought that revolutionary war and they won it. And they installed this, this kind of government with which we're, you know, a republic if we can keep it and we're losing it. Yes. And, yeah. and the way of, of, of restoring it is not to say that it was contaminated from the beginning, that it's a poison pill with a time release formula. The best thing we could do is return to its principles. Right. And, and the, the natural law context in which they were articulated. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about condescension. The, the most effective tool that a lot of these Catholic integralist, post-liberals, populists on the right that, that are really against your book, America on Trial, or, or have been against my book, Catholic Republic, they just laugh. They, and this is the most condescending thing you can do, which is why it's rhetorically effective. They just laugh at the notion. They won't get into the history the way you do in chapter two and three of, wow, Whigism, I think um, uh, Novak called it uh, Catholic Whigism, or Whigism is, is, is Catholic, and that's absolutely undeniable when you look at facts. But these people are populists in not only the particular set, particular economic sense, they're also populists in the general sense. You know how Aristotle does that with justice, particular justice, general justice. And so what they're trying to do is foment and scare up a sense, not among the left liberals, they've already done that and their people already say the American founding is racist and populist things they don't even understand. But we've been infiltrated. See, I mean, I had this show, I talked about this with Greg. I had this show 
TNT with Dr. Taylor Marshall, where we talked about the infiltration of the clergy over the course of the 1900s, um, well before Vatican II. And the more research I do on it, because I'm writing two more books this summer, one of which is on it, the clergy was being infiltrated in the 1800s as well. And in some sense, I feel that I created a monster, not, not, not for pointing that out because it's true and I'm writing another book on it. But because many of the same people that hear these arguments against modernism in the church and they recoil instinctively, they're the same ones that are being told from a lot of people that sound like me who oppose theological modernism that America and the American founding are bad. It's a kind of popular. I feel like Frankenstein, I, I, I helped to create this monster because TNT was wildly popular. And yet a, a lot of the same parties, I'm talking 85, 90% of the people that liked what we were saying against theological modernism, think America was a country founded by Freemasons. America's on trial, your book says it, and it's against a lot of these same people. I feel like partly responsible for this. How, well, how, what are we to do? I don't think you have to blame yourself for this, Tim. What, what I find in uh, people like Deneen is their thinking has been uh, fundamentally formed by uh, Leo Strauss. Yes. And yeah, I studied with uh, Straussians at the Claremont Graduate School. Uh, so I'm, I'm very familiar with, with Strauss's uh, teachings, which are, are profound. Strauss was a, was a great thinker by any standard. But what particularly um, affects them is his dichotomy between ancient and modern. Yeah, yeah. And since we fall on the modern side of that, uh, we, we are the recipients of all the obloquy that comes with uh, Strauss's analysis of the modern, that there's a, a profound switch between understanding things and changing things, you know, you know, between Francis Bacon and Aristotle, you know these arguments. Right. And the, the American founding gets swept up in this ancient modern dichotomy, and that we indeed are modern and therefore are subject to condemnation. The thing is, of course, you know that that Strauss was Jewish, and he thought that the, uh, the tension between faith and reason was the, the kind of the creative dynamo of right. the West. Right. And he did not look favorably upon Thomas Aquinas's reconciliation of faith and reason. So uh, for Straussians, it's always, I remember when I first began studying with these people, becoming familiar with their, their thinking, that it, it was always Athens and Jerusalem. Right. And I kept asking them, well, what about Rome? Yeah. Why should I talk about Rome? Right. Me too. And, um, you know, Deneen, uh, I think when he was in graduate school, won the Strauss Prize, or perhaps it was his thesis. He's a very, Deneen is a very good thinker. He's a very good classicist. Um, but I, that's, I think, at the origin of a lot of this critique that, the the Christian political thinking that, that, that what we've spent most of your program talking about 
whether it's Thomist or uh, Bellarmine or Suarez or these people are, are get they're lost. They don't we we miss their in their formative influence. So that this you can't you this this dichotomy of ancient and modern uh, kind of cuts cuts us off from the medieval heritage. We lose it. Thank and you. One effort in my book is to say you no no. Look at what's there. Look at what the, this. It does, that divide does not come down uh, in in between that it it can't be bifurcated in that way. So yeah. whereas I appreciate tremendously the thought of of Leo Strauss, uh, who who had such a blistering uh, indictment of modernist thinking terrific indictment of modern ideological thinking um, isn't so helpful in understanding the things we're talking about. No, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I know you're, you're, you're close friends with a lot of the Straussians. My, my, there's a few things I would, I would stipulate for my own part. I, I, I think we largely speak the exact same language, so I, I've deigned to speak for you here a few times today because I know your arguments well and we've we've collaborated a lot but this I'm, I'm speaking only for myself um, and this this does go to I think it's unfortunate that the best places families of uh, non-religious uh, affiliation or maybe they're Catholic but they don't want to go to a Catholic school the best institutions of higher learning you can send your undergraduate student are the Straussian hotbeds I don't dispute that Hillsdale Claremont's even the University of Dallas, which is Catholic, has strong Straussian connections. So I don't dispute that, but I think it's bad that they, they tend to only read the Federalist Papers. They don't read the Anti-Federalist Papers. There's a reason. It's related to what you're saying. A law school professor, my, my mentor, said, um, and, and Father Kevin L. Flannery, when I was writing my, my Aristotle's a small government guy, Thomas is a small government guy, Ticina, under Kevin L. Flannery, leading Thomist in the world, um, both of these mentors, my legal and my philosophical mentor, said, well, watch out for the Straussians, Tim, because uh, the former told me this. Look, Strauss is Strauss. He, he has some insight, whatever. But it's his followers. They break into three groups, right? There's the West Coast Straussians. And I did study at Claremont uh, Graduate School for a while, too. There's the West Coast Straussians, the Midwest Straussians, and the East Coast Straussians. And you can parse them with three propositions or two premises and a conclusion. It's either um, antiquity is antiquity or modernity are good or bad. They pick between that mode. Uh, America is either ancient or modern, and therefore America is either good or bad. The West Coast Straussians are closest to you and I, Bob, because they do they say antiquity is good, America's ancient and therefore America's good. So they come out the most affirmative of things like the American founding. I still say there are problems because they accept Strauss's hardline dichotomy between ancient and modern, which cuts out, as you beautifully said it earlier, the medieval era. There is no hardline dichotomy of ancient and modern because the medieval era, contrary to what 99.9% .9 of the people out there think, the medieval era eliminates the dichotomy. We're just using their thoughts. But it's kind of, with with some um, modifications. They're saying 
we're moderns who are looking back to the ancients. I, I say no, medievalism um, greases the skids, but whatever, they're the closest. The no, Midwestern Straussians. No, I would simply say, um, Tim, I, I studied with Harry Jaffa yeah. at, at Claremont and was in touch with him uh, in his latter years. Uh, I think that Harry Jaffa was one of the most powerful defenders of natural law in the recent era. Yeah. It, he, was, he was not only in terms of Lincoln and the founding, but he <laughs> took upon himself a defensive marriage against uh, the, the, the LGBTQ panoply yeah, caused did. hysteria in Claremont, and he didn't flinch. Harry Jaffa was a he was a courageous man. He was dedicated to the truth. He was a uh, a powerful defender of natural law. Now, if if I I know we're we're practically out of time here, Jaffa, the he's he is the West the the quintessential West Coast Straussian, right? Yes. Yes. And the East Coast Straussians would say, well, he's just a cheerleader for the American regime. Yes, they do say that. No, so Alan Bloom and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, he's no longer, you know, a respectable political philosopher. He's just a cheerleader. And Jaffa would respond, well, what your problem on the East Coast is that you are doctrinaire skeptics. Precisely. And yeah. that they they would only the best argument they could make for the American regime is not that it contains or reflects certain immutable transcendent truths, but that it it is a regime which allows us to philosophize. Precisely. And, yeah. and of course, it the endeavor of philosophy can't you know doesn't because of the skeptical grounds on which they philosophize. Um, th they can't reach a truth, right? But they That's think right. the most noble thing to do is to philosophize, and any regime that allows to do them is is the regime they'll defend. Right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, of course, I'm exaggerating to make this clear, but uh, uh, Java would say, "No, there are there are truths we can know that are." transcendent. Those truths were articulated in the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. They are immutable. Uh, and those who deny them are the ones who are responsible for the decline in which we are. Can, right. can I just read a brief thing that I think of course. is so helpful um, when people are, are saying, well, who did it then? You know, how did this happen to us? that we're in a state of such moral degeneracy. I offer this brief sentence from Barack Obama's The Audacity of Hope. <laughs> Here he says, quote, implicit in the Constitution's structure and the very idea of ordered liberty was a rejection of absolute truth. Unbelievable. Rejection of the infallibility of any idea or ideology or theology or ism 
and any tyrannical consistency that might lock future generations into a single unalterable course, unquote. In other words, the truth does not set you free. The truth enslaves you. Right. right? So we're not going to be slaves to the truth because, in fact, there isn't any transcendent truth. And this is, this is the whole underlying uh, anti-philosophy of progressivism and Obama being, you know, progressivist number one. Uh, so that's what's gotten us in trouble. And, and progressivism was, was not a Native American plant. You know, no. it was supported in, in uh, 19th century German historicism. It was. So this is, um, that's where we need to look. And we need to restore those founding principles, not to turn, you know, I'll just, if I can close with this little story. <clears throat> My oldest son, uh, when he was a senior at a Catholic university, a very fine one, had a government class in which the professor gave his analysis of the American founding as a morally compromised poison pill. He didn't offer this as one of a variety of views, but as the view. And he convinced most of his students. And at the end of the course, one of them said, okay, you've convinced us. Well, what are we supposed to do now? That's the practical effect, the debilitating effect of right. this teaching that undercuts the founding. What are you supposed to do in light of this if it is correct? I'm not saying if it's correct, we should ignore the, the truth of it. I'm saying it's not correct. It's not true. Uh, and to the extent to which it's accepted, it undermines any, any hope of recovery. So that's the, uh, that's the problem. That's, that's one problem. Yeah, and this is where there really needs to be as a responsible, as um, an appurtenance of responsible thinking and responsible teaching. There needs to be some response from the Catholic thinkers who we've we've mentioned here. I don't want to keep banging the war drum, but because what they're saying about American constitutionalism is just what Woodrow Wilson and uh, FDR and Obama were saying about um, progressivism, getting beyond the constitutionalism. I, I mean, Vermeule said it, you know, last month in The Atlantic more directly than Deneen would say it. Then they have to account for the fact that they're going along with a secular progressive ideology that's based on German historicism. It's not based on, they, they talk as if it's all based in the church, but we need to hold them to account. If you, if, you know, part of patriotism is staying with our regime as long as it's morally defensible. And if they're going to talk like progressives, they ought to own the progressive mantle, oughtn't they? I, 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 I can, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's dangerous. That's all I'm saying. It's, I try to point out the dangers. No, you do so excellently. It's uh, incorrect. It's 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 dangerous. So this isn't some kind of academic parlor game. We're talking about the future 
of our nation and whether it's defensible. One of the finest priests, very lucky to live in the Arlington Diocese, uh, which has such extraordinary men. And one of the best of them, I was listening to a, a podcast sermon in which he was reflecting on this great problem. Can you be a good Catholic and a good American? Right. And he was dubious about whether you could because this poison pill thesis had infected him. So some of our finest, finest uh, priests, you know, Archbishop Chaput, they, they were... They've drunk this this poison chalice, I would say, you know, to an extent. And and that's if the if you're best to believe it, then you're in real, real trouble. Yeah, amen. Amen. Yeah. Stra Strangers in a strange land was his book there. And uh, yeah, what you're saying is is uh real beautiful. A lot of good men have have drank uh the bromide. And it's it's entirely appropriate. We're in, you know we have a we have a surprise guest on Saturday, but we've done Kathmin Gov Week, um, it, every, a show every day of the week, which is harder harder than it sounds. Uh, oh. Normally we do two or three shows a week. Doing five is a lot. Your book it's it's appropriate, Bob, that we end with America on Trial, which everyone should go. We're we're gonna picture it above your shoulder there, uh, probably throughout the whole thing when we edit this up and and have it up you know, Friday, but it's appropriate to end on the note that you do and on the note of America on trial, because the founding is a good thing. It's what I call a crypto Catholic thing. It is, uh, under assault, not a, a meaningful trial because it's under assault from Catholics. Not you're not, you're not talking about the liberal left. You're talking about the illiberal right <laughs> to, to use a term and everyone who has a mind to read serious-minded books need to needs to go pick up uh, your book today, and we, that's why we we can't push it enough. It sounds tacky for me to push Catholic Republic, and people get really tired of that, but <laughs> I mean, rightly so. But I mean, this don't read Catholic Republic anymore, right? It's already had its run in the sun. Everyone read America on Trial. It's really, really really an important book or we're going to lose the republic this is not academic badinage right and um yeah i just thank you for all the uh the cross wisdom bob uh, we consulted a lot uh two summers ago and then last summer and um uh, yeah it's just it's just really important stuff and you do great work there and yeah. you've had a long storied career and have studied with a lot of these people directly yeah so i, I really appreciate your time coming on with us oh. on kathmin gov week <laughs> Tim, thank you very much. God bless you. God bless you, too. And I hate to also do this shameless self-promotion, not with the, the books that I've written or I'm writing, but we do want you to remember out there, because I, I, I get so involved in the ideas, and you know I, I believe these things passionately. Minimum government, uh, true liberalism, true libertyism is Catholic. It's Thomistic, first and foremost, I get into these ideas and then I forget to say a few things at the end of shows that I, I find irritating and, and vexing. One, everyone please subscribe to the channel because since I left TNT, we have, you know, we have a, a good amount of viewers, but a lot of people have not subscribed to the channel that are watching these videos. Uh, we've seen so in the analytics recently. Please hit like, hit the bell, 
And then also, please do see, as we're wrapping up Kath Min Gov Week, and we have a surprise guest uh, tomorrow on Saturday, but please do, we don't, we don't hit it often, look to our Patreon accounts or the accounts of other people because we're bringing you this content. Acton Institute guys like Father Sirico, amazing work. Dr. Samuel Gregg. Who, who helps him run the Acton Institute. Both of them are speakers. We brought on Miss Stephanie Slade, the only Catholic Gov guest of the week that actually calls herself a Catholic libertarian. Can, can you even do that? Um, uh, of course, we had Trent Horn and his economic book attacking socialism and saying, why are so many Catholics calling themselves socialists? This is troubling. Uh, kind of the economic counterparts to... Bob's book and Sam Gregg's books and my book at the um, political philosophy level. Trent Horn has a political economy book saying Catholics can't be socialists. Catholics need not be integralists. Catholics can be Republicans. And um, anyway, please, we'd like to bring you all this good content. These interviews require a lot of effort and a lot of wherewithal. Uh, mainly intellectual and, and temporal wherewithal to prepare for and to bring you a good product as a listening podcast or a viewing YouTube podcast. So please, people, do see to, as we come out of COVID-19, see to the Patreon sections and uh, the rules for retrograde as we wrap up Kath Mingov week today here on Friday. We'll have a surprise guest tomorrow on Saturday, a uh, representative of President Trump, a Catholic one, Please bear all these things in mind, and please remember that we have a beautiful republic if we can keep it, even in all its moral degeneracy, which was not a poison pill. Anyway, thank you so much, Bob. Amen. I will talk to you real soon. Keep up the good work, my friend. Thank you. You too. God bless you.